You're listening to The 21st Folio, a podcast about modern Shakespeare productions of stage and screen. The podcast is a subsidiary of The Seventh Row, an online publication dedicated to interdisciplinary film and theater criticism. You can find us on Twitter at Seventh Row with the number seven spelled out or online at seventh-row.com. That's S-E-V-E-N-T-H-Row.com. First Folio. Uh, on today's episode, we're going to be comparing two productions of Twelfth Night, the 1996 film adaptation directed by Trevor Nunn, and the 2012 recording of uh, the Globe Shakespeare's Globe production of Twelfth Night, which stars uh, Mark Rylance and Stephen Fry, among many, many others. I'm Alex Heaney, the editor-in-chief of The Seventh Row. You can find me on Twitter at BWestCineast. That's B-W-E-S-T-C-I-N-E-A-S-T-E. My guests today are Caitlin Merriman. Hi, I'm Caitlin Merriman. You can find me on Twitter at CaitlinSnark, C-A-I-T-L-I-N-S-N-A-R-K. And Craig Rattan. Hello, Craig Rattan, a Toronto-based Shakespeare enthusiast. You can find me on Twitter at CRUT, C-R-U-T. And in a very special crossover with uh, the No Holds Barred podcast, we've got Dan Bolio. Hi, everybody. I'm at Dan Bonos, D-A-N-B-E-A-U-K-N-O-W-S, artistic director and co-founder of Seven Stages Shakespeare Company and co-host of No Holds Barred podcast. Excellent. All right. So let's start with what did everybody think of the two productions? Um, I love the movie. And I have, I I love the production live, and I have a hard time with the production on film, uh, of the the Globe production. I saw, I got, I got the chance to see it live here, uh, when it performed on Broadway, and seeing it, seeing that same production on film was very interesting and challenging for me. Hmm. But that, those are my initial nutshell thoughts. I'm excited to crack those nuts open on this podcast. <laughs> and Caitlin, I know this is one of your like top five Shakespeare films. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, I think it was along with like Baslam and Romeo and Juliet and Brand as Much Ado, it was one of my first real sort of exposures to Shakespeare. Um, I think I did it in like fourth form and, uh, and I have no idea what that is in North American. Um, but, uh, it's (laughs) just (laughs) approximately 14. Okay. Um, So it's like grade eight or grade nine. Okay. (laughs) Like years of American television. I still have no idea. Um, But uh, it was just, I just, I love, I remember watching it and just loving how quick it was and um, how sharp and, and just funny, which, you know, for a 14 year old with Shakespeare is not always a given. Um, And, and also like Helena Bonham Carter is a goddess. And that's probably half the reason. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I've I've loved it um, for ages and seen it four thousand times. And I did enjoy the stage production, um, the filmed Globe production, uh, with a couple of caveats, definitely uh, related partly to the uh, um, actor who played Viola. But uh, overall, it was I think it was great to watch a, a new production of it that I hadn't seen a hundred times because it was a lot funnier than watching the film for the millionth time just mm-hmm. because the jokes were done differently and there were new ones that I, I hadn't like seen performed. So yeah, they're both good, but um, I think I still prefer the nun film. So I actually didn't see the nun film growing up. So I came to it with fresh eyes for this podcast and huh. I wasn't a huge fan of it. Uh, so this is going to be controversial. Uh, nice. But uh, there were a lot of things I liked in it, but overall, I, uh, yeah, I found some of the like choices they made drew away from the story for me, and I, I found some of them a little problematic, even with the the great performances that were part of the the film. And I quite liked the uh, the Globe film actually. I uh, uh, found it 
Uh, so partially, I, I haven't seen this production. I have seen other shows at the Globe. Uh, so it was sort of sentimental bringing me back to seeing those. But, uh, you know, I first original practices uh, production that I'd seen. Uh, and I thought that the, the, the filming of it was was pretty effective in in demonstrating or in, in showing some of the the aspects of, of the stage production so i guess we can get into it more later alex your thoughts yeah i'm somewhere in the middle of all of you because i i grew up with it i think i was younger than caitlin when i first saw it i probably saw it a couple of years after it came out on vhs back in the dark ages <laughs> and it was definitely like after I was already in love with much with Kenneth Branagh's Much Ado About Nothing and I remember I really loved the film and I've seen it a bunch of times but I haven't seen it in like maybe 10 years or something um so this is the first time I'd watched it as like a proper adult and yeah I don't know I I really like it um but I have some pro- some issues with some of the pacing in it there I felt like it was kind of slow um and i think yeah and i felt like some of some of that might have been deliberate because it was going for a definitely darker tone and pulling out the darker parts of the of the play than the globe theater productions um and so i i didn't find it as funny as i remember finding it but also it's possible i was just too tired when i was watching it so (laughs) (laughs) Uh, who knows and as for the globe production i really really enjoyed it i don't think i've found Twelfth Nights quite so hysterically funny before. And it, it was also kind of interesting because a couple of years ago I saw um, an all-female Twelfth Night. Um, so mm-hmm. this is an interesting contrast to that. I agree with Caitlin that God, Violet was awful. And definitely having seen the Nun film as like my introduction to Twelfth Night, I definitely grew up thinking that Viola was the center of the play and was sort of surprised to learn that actually she's never really been considered the center of the play. Um, and so it, it's sort of interesting to see the Globes production where obviously she's not the center of that production. Right. Yeah. And question. I, yeah. Are you saying that based on the nun film, you thought that Viola was the center of the play? Is that, is that a fair? Yeah. yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. I just, I'm jumping ahead of us, but I, I felt like the nun film centers on Feste, but we'll get to that, I guess. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. I can, I can, I can sort of see that. Um, but she, yeah, well, because she's clearly like the star around whose story everybody pivots, even if you don't consider her the most interesting protagonist. Got it. Okay. Whereas she's just so awful in the other one that um, you it really brings out how bland she is as a character if she's not played by uh, Imogen Stubbs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, what was I going to say? Yeah, I, I haven't seen the stage production. Um, I was surprised by how good I thought the recording was because I think, I mean, something that Danny was saying on our Coriolanus episode was that uh, it can be really hard to watch recorded theater because you feel like you're sort of watching a documentary, the production, and it's kind of exhausting. And I actually didn't find that with this. And I felt like I got enough information about the blocking and I got enough information about the performances. I was surprised by how engaging it was as a film that it almost made me reconsider our exclusively bring back the hybrid plea <laughs> yeah right yeah okay well let's let's hear about your fest day theory oh no i i just um i'm sorry i i was just saying i felt like in the in the movie it feels like fest day drives that story and there are moments when characters try to rip it from him and and ben kingsley is masterful at bringing it back mm-hmm. um for an example the moment in when the song, yeah, youth the stuff will not endure, which in in the text is only one line, and they repeat it four times. And they, they none made that scene about Toby and Mariah, and them looking at each other, and and it's very much them falling in love, and it's also cut up and and mixed in with the Orsino Viola scene or Cesario scene, I should say, and it's all about these two sets of lovers, and then. Kingsley just rips it right back on that on the third use of stuff will not endure. He just is like, no, 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 this is I'm telling this story. I think he is he the narrator in the in the prologue? Yeah. Is that Kingsley? Is that Feste? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So as you get the sense like this is we are in, as all the characters in, in the play are being entertained by Feste. 
So I felt like it was his story that he was telling and Violet didn't, didn't jump out for me, which is, it's so interesting. Why, why do you think she is, you both said that she was the central character for you in, in the film. So why? Well, I, I mean, I agree with you that um, Fiste really drives the story in terms of he, he, like I, one of my notes is just all caps. Um, Fiste knows because he always, <laughs> yeah. knows. he knows everything that's going on. Um, and I get that he's got some great kind of like, like meta narrative stuff. Um, especially my favorite part of the whole film, the last bit where he sings right into the camera. Oh, um, yeah. But in terms of like the actual story and the way it's structured, like they, uh, the reason they added, I think the reason that the, they added the little prologue at the beginning um, with the ship sinking is, and of course moving the, what country friends is this scene to the first kind of, proper Shakespeare spoken is to recenter Viola. So we're, we're following her. We don't start with Orsino. Um, we start with her and it sort of sets up her relationship with her brother. And uh, yeah, it, and I think also of area. Yeah, that was done really well um, because I think the, the way that the film set up the seriousness of this, conflict between Illyria and Messalin is um it makes her decision to to dress as a boy and and go to Orsino's court like much more clear I think uh, I mean obviously it, it's a comedy so it doesn't necessarily have to make sense but um that I think that the nun film does a good job of of making that seem kind of like a natural thing to do yeah I don't and it's just it's it's primarily, I think, the nun film, the love story between Orsino and Viola, and of course between Olivia and Sebastian, kind of to the side, slightly not not like a subplot, but uh, a less sort of a, a connected plot of lesser importance. But yeah, I don't know. I guess I I see Viola as the kind of main like protagonist of the story, whereas Feste is telling us the story. So he's, he's in it, but he's also outside of it. Mm. No, I, I totally, I agree with what you're saying, Caitlin. I think that adding the prologue by starting with Sebastian and Viola, both in drag really sets it up as a story about the twins being separated, as opposed to here's a story about Illyria. There happen to be some twins and funny business happens with them. And they also really make a point of having Orsino be like a hunk <laughs> um, because like, so I haven't seen, I hadn't seen the film in 10 years, but there are things that I remembered vividly about it. One of them was the Orsino bathtub scene. Um, Cause I definitely had a crush yeah. on Orsino as a kid <laughs> and, <laughs> and did not know that he was Dame Peg's son. And, uh, and also like the fact that they have all this stuff with um, Sir Andrew and, and Toby in uh in in the kitchen like the fridge looms large in my memory um and so i think that they definitely made orsino who's kind of like boring they definitely tried to make him smolder wait, um, wait, wait. boring on on paper or in the in the film what do you mean when you say orsino is boring what, do you, what does that mean he doesn't have a lot yeah i mean on paper i guess he's okay. like kind of just you know stuff happens to him <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know if I agree, but it's an, it's very interesting theory. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm exaggerating a little, but um exaggeration is is, is good. It's um, comedy after all. <laughs> but oh, oh, like if you That's compare really with the Globe production in which Orsino is just sort of like I totally love Olivia and then oh, I seem to be having feelings for my my servant. Hmm. <laughs> right. hmm. Oh, well, I mean, that that obviously happens in the nun one, but the fact that they're always like two inches from each other's face is like they're definitely pulling in the trying to make you feel as he's, you know, very attractive, which is not necessarily a preoccupation otherwise. Also, I first saw this film when I was like 10. So (laughs) and I and I and I like had a crush on Arsino. So this is very much filtered through that. (laughs) I'm I'm not going to judge your girlhood crushes. (laughs) <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I think it, the the role of Feste in the Nun film is really interesting. I think that in other live productions I've seen and then in the Globe production, Feste is very much 
part of sort of just the the ensemble the the ensemble the collection of characters right maria and sir andrew and sir toby uh and he's has a slightly different role to play but is very much grouped in with them and the nun film really pulls his role out uh and i mean part of that's on the strength of the performance but it's also the the directing and editing choices they make to make him much more central to tying the stories together and and really moving the plot forward in a way that Oftentimes, I mean, like it's a role that's great for, you know, the sort of star established actor of your company. Uh, But oftentimes it's almost like the standalone feature, right? You give him a couple of songs and everyone applauds when he comes out and leaves. And then the story continues. Whereas in the Nun film, Feste seems uh, much more central to the to the narrative. Right. Well, and he oversees Viola's arrival. Like he's sitting Mm -hmm. up on a cliff or something watching what's going on. So it's very much through his eyes. Although what I would say, I'm not sure I agree that he's entertaining so much as judging in the nun film or sort of not necessarily judging, but looking at the story as opposed to entertaining us with the story. Like there's that, not, isn't that the great, the great task of the artist is just to give you the story and let you be entertained or not, but just to present the story to you and go here, here is the story without commenting on it as the storyteller. Well, but he definitely does comment on it, though. How so? Well, for example, there's that scene where Orsino and Cesario are, I can't remember. They're, they go and they see Feste, and I think Feste is playing for them. And they're, like, cuddling <laughs> really close. Oh, yeah, in, during the and storm. Then, yeah, and then Feste gets this, and then King Ben Kingsley gets this close-up where he just, like, raises his eyebrow or something like... Hmm. hmm right. <laughs> this is pretty gay. Hmm. Right. <laughs> then he gets to have the, the line at the end, and pleasure shall be paid one time or another. Where he's like, Yeah. Yes. <laughs> like, that was mm, that this was... is all gonna work out just fine. Which is, you know, reassurance of comedy. And, and they then, also have him as sort of like a vagrant who sort of comes in at the beginning and then leaves at the end in a very obvious way and is dressed in I mean not in Motley because it's in the what it said in what the tens or the yeah, is that Edwardian? Yeah, Probably. yeah, definitely like early Edwardian or late Victorian. Yeah, so he's he's not as obviously sort of the entertainer. He's more sort of like the wandering artist or the wandering philosopher almost because he's poor. Very Shakespearean. Yeah, <laughs> the sort of wandering. I will go where where I'm where I'm accepted. But that's interesting because Feste is one of the only characters in the play that is accepted in both households. Cesario sort of forces him herself into Orsino's household and then is sent to Olivia's and Olivia wants Cesario there, but Cesario doesn't want to be there. But for the rest, Feste has this sort of dexterity to go between mm-hmm. both places. And, you know, we get the information that the lady Olivia's father loved Feste. And also he was the one that sang last night at Orsino's. So he sort of transcends this. And it's really interesting, I think, that Feste has that ability to to move between all of the worlds, whereas Antonio can't really function in either of the worlds in this in this play. He's just sort of thrust mm-hmm. in and goes, I can't I gotta put on a, a disguise on because I'm not wanted here. Um, but it's pretty different from a lot of the other Shakespearean fools because he's not tied to one character like Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or like uh, Touchstone or – I mean not that Jaquees is exactly tied to one character, but he's certainly tied to a, a faction. Um, what, think, why do you think – Caitlin, why, why, are you, why do you think Viola is central? What, you, you responded strongly to Viola in the Globe, you said. You did not, uh, did not, <laughs> <laughs> did not yeah. love. No, it was at first when I was starting to watch the, the Globe production – and Viola was on, and I was like, "Oh God, how long is this thing?" Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was such a relief when uh, when I think it was, the moment that I realized that it wasn't all going to be like that was uh, when Mariah came on and was just perfect. I think the actor who played Viola just was not uh, up to it, like. And I feel bad for him. Um, uh, he was very cute, and he looked very much like Sebastian. Um, but I think, I think for me, the issue was that he 
was focusing so much on sounding like a woman that he kind of forgot to, you know, act yeah. the lines instead of just say them. With, like, I was thinking about um, that great RSC playing Shakespeare series that I watched a few episodes of on YouTube. And there's this bit where Ian McKellen talked about painting the line with an emotion instead of actually acting it, like feeling it. And that's what I felt the whole time that he was just painting this these lines with whatever it was he was trying to say. And like sometimes he forgot to do that even. So it was just very monotonous, kind of just slightly high-pitched stuff for uh, the whole time. And I felt that to a lesser extent with Rylance as Olivia when I first encountered her. But I felt that that was more of – it seemed more like a choice than just – not really doing anything. Yeah, whereas Mariah, the actor who played Mariah, was brilliant because I think his energy was less on trying to sound like a woman and more on on actually portraying the character and being funny, being hilarious. Yeah, and um, and it was it was so jarring because I've I rewatched the Nun film like within the last couple of days. And then I just switched straight to the stage show and to go from Viola being so kind of vibrant and full of life and like full of snark and, and wit to this kind of just, there was that line that Cleopatra said in um, Antony and Cleopatra about hearing a, a boy kind of squeaking out her, her words. That's kind of how I felt about <laughs> this Viola. It was, it was really unfortunate. Well, I think the other thing, the the problem with having a really good Viola is something that you were sort of saying, Caitlin, is that you just sort of want them to ru- want Viola and Olivia to run off together. And um, Orsino seems sort of like a consolation prize. Like, I know I said he was dreaming, but he's in the film, but he's still like pretty boring compared to Helena Bonham Carter. Yeah, um, yeah. Whereas at least in the stage production, it was like, well, Philo was kind of boring and Orsino was kind of boring. So I guess they can have each other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought Orsino was infuriating on the stage as opposed to in boring. I was like, yeah, I would agree with that. But I guess I just mean that you don't feel as much like Viola is settling. <laughs> Right. Right. Um, The weird thing though about Johnny Flynn is that his his line readings are like actually decent in the sense that you can understand what he's saying and he's clearly had help with the speech. Even though it's just is it's just so boring, you want to die. But it's not like listening to Leonardo DiCaprio try and speak as Romeo, where you're just like, (laughs) like you want to die also, but He's, you know, charismatic. You just kind of wish that you could put him on mute. <laughs> Seems I, more I do not feel the same way. <laughs> <laughs> him on mute. I, I, I like the audio track. Yeah. But to speak to Claire Danes personally, I don't know. Yeah. Claire, are you there? <laughs> Claire, can you hear me? <laughs> yeah, but I'll agree that the Globe production, Viola, was just kind of a wet rag and like a, like a one-note mopey. <laughs> performance oh no uh like i'm so sad that we're describing all of shakespeare's characters as wet something no but but i don't think noodle (laughs) is a wet rag what wet are you maybe that can be the new standalone podcast (laughs) wet blank uh but the thing is i don't think the character of viola is that one note wet rag and like i mean my baseline is a stage production i saw a few years ago at stratford festival in uh ontario uh with andrea runge as viola who the previous season i think had played rosalind and brought a lot of that sort of fire and spark to the role of viola which makes a lot of sense to me someone who you know is passionate and goes through pretty like you know, shitty time losing her like brother at sea and starting her life again and feeling all these conflicted emotions, but has that like that fiery exchange and the nun film captured it much better. I think, I mean mm-hmm. the exchange, uh, some of the like very early exchanges and throughout the film with Olivia, uh, has that sharp Shakespearean banter edge to it that we see, you know, with in, in much ado and in, in so many of the films, uh, or sorry, of different plays, that like that sharp contrast and battle of wills and wits that just didn't come anywhere close to Viola in the, in the RSC or in the, in the globe production. 
Yeah, I think I was sort of saying the same, uh, something similar to Caitlin yesterday, where I was suggesting that Viola is sort of like the Henry IV of this play, in the sense that she's the protagonist, but she's kind of not. But also she's like, she's interesting, like you're saying, but she's not the sort of crowd pleaser. She's not exactly the Falstaff of the play, or even the Hal. But can she be? Text, well, apparently, text, textually, history, apparently in the history of production, she never has been. But uh, according to the Art and Shakespeare, it's never been her play. And it had like a fallow period for 80 years or something in the 1600s when nobody performed it. Right. But obviously it can be because none did it. Hmm. Mm. If you don't think that it's best to explain none. <laughs> <it>. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. I think I would be willing to concede that it's both of theirs in in Nun's film. I am not willing to concede that, but, <laughs> <laughs> but just for the sake of conflict, for an interesting pause. Well, but... I don't know. Maybe, maybe if you're like a young girl watching it, it's very clearly Viola's. Maybe that's part no, of where's, it. Where's, where's our ten year old girl guest on this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Let's get That'd the get the middle school opinion. Well, Caitlin and I are accessing our inner ten year old, fourteen year old. Viola in the Nun film as Cesario has an interesting take on status, I think. Because I don't ever really, I don't buy that Cesario is a servant. I think she plays, I don't, I don't think she ever sheds her status as Viola. And she brings that, and which actually makes sense that that's why Olivia is so attracted to her, him, mm-hmm. him, her. But she is very cheap. And Orsino too, for that matter. Right. Right. She plays, you know, that the status never really goes away, which is very appealing, I think, to a 10 year old girl to go, hey, I can do I can conquer the world. Even despite horrific loss, I can be a servant. And while being a servant, I can be I still run the show, which is interesting. But it, it troubled me, I think, because um, I, I did appreciate I I think I may be alone here. I, I liked Viola. In the Globe production, um, and I liked, <laughs> I liked the turmoil. I, I thought I really, I, I empathized. I, I felt sorrow for that Viola because um, I felt like there was so much that Viola wanted to say but couldn't say and was mm-hmm. constricted, um, and that was really interesting to me. I also wanted <laughs> wanted her to say it, but that. The fact that it troubled me made me appreciate it as a piece of theater as opposed to being like, oh, you can just apparently tell people in someone else's house whatever you feel like uh, in the, the, with the uh, interaction with Mariah where Viola or Cesario takes that status right back. It's like that's interesting for a messenger. That's not, that's not really in line but that's just Viola coming through Cesario. She can't deny her spirit, which was really compelling. I, I, I like them both. <laughs> I don't know. It was interesting the way that they handle status. Do you think, though, that the that in the Globe production that it's Flynn's performance or the direction that is making Viola interesting? Or, I mean, it could be both. It could be <laughs> both. I, I think I – will, I will tell you I think that it is the direction – yeah. Because when I saw it in New York, the actor who plays Sebastian in the mm-hmm. film that we're talking about, in the film production of The Globe, mm-hmm. got bumped up to Viola. Huh. And so I saw I saw the Sebastian play Viola oh. live. Um, <laughs> See, and we I, were saying that they should have swapped the two. That's what we were saying. They did. We <laughs> so they, I'm glad they took our advice. Uh, I don't yeah. actually, I don't think... I don't think Flynn was involved. I, should, I, I can check this online real quick, but I don't trust my computer enough to do that. Um, but the performances were not dissimilar. So I think I think to respond to your question, it is the direction because the, they were very they were very similar performances. Um, I did I did like the Viola that I saw live more, of course, because I was in the room with her, which I think is interesting, but. Although I think we also thought that he was a better actor, so that might help. Yeah, and that probably helps. <laughs> <laughs> like that, because, that doesn't hurt. Because I think that was the other the strong contrast for me is that in the film, Sebastian is, I find, like, 
the boring sibling. And then in the Globe production, Sebastian was the interesting sibling to me anyway. Yeah. Huh. I can't help but but notice that Sir Andrew looks like Sebastian and Viola. And with the whole world of people to cast, that has to be deliberate, right? But I, don't, I don't understand. No, the insane thing is that Richard E. Grant doesn't have blonde hair. And <laughs> I know. <laughs> I was wondering about the blonde hair. And I think part of it might just be, and I don't know if this was true at the time, but I have a perception of Richard E. Grant as the guy who comes into things and plays the slightly terrifying character. So, like, the the creepy one. And so maybe the blonde hair was an attempt to kind of stop that, uh, to make us not scared of him or or creeped out by him, but just to think he was ridiculous. I I thought that that was the weirdest casting choice, but it it works, I think. He's a a pretty funny Andrew Agajik. I hadn't made the connection between the, uh, the connection between Andrew and Sebastian and Viola before. Uh, Yeah, it didn't cross my mind when I was watching the film. Does does anyone think it's like deliberate or what that is meant to evoke? If it is, I hadn't noticed it before, but when I watched it again for this, because I was like, "Oh, we're going to be on a podcast. I should watch that again." And more, more critically and analytically, suddenly I was like, "Wait, they look similar enough that it might just be a choice." But I don't get it if it is. So maybe not. I'm going to cast my lot in with coincidence. Okay, sweet. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm guessing that that's not why they picked um, Richard E. Grant, since my <laughs> sense is that Trevor Nunn just like begged all his friends to be in the movie, and they thought they all said yes. <laughs> uh, the producer, that's basically what the producer said, and the special features. He was like, "Yeah, nobody did this for the money." Trevor just like said, "Please, please do this," and they all said, "Okay, fine." <laughs> but I don't know why they had Richard E. Grant be blonde. There's the the photograph. That reappears. Could I put photographs? Also, I just looked it up, and you're right that they did swap Viola and Sebastian. I don't know if Flynn was in it, but yeah, it was definitely right. that. He got bumped up. I knew. I knew he got. I knew that Sebastian definitely got bumped up to Viola, but I wasn't sure if it was a straight swap or if it was a replacement. Hmm. I think there was a. I think you're right. Also, that Johnny Flynn wasn't in it. I'm not seeing him on the list of right. cast members. Um, on to other things. Hey, Johnny Flynn. Well. <laughs> you should have seen the the, the Viola Live was great. Yeah, I, I had a big crush, and then I was like, "I'm conflicted. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta call my girlfriend." Yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> good news. Crush on good Viola. Hit. Bad news. <laughs> <laughs> you had a very Orsino moment while you were watching it. I did. <laughs> I was like, "What is what is the stirring I'm having?" Here. But. Is that is that a good segue into talking about the performance of gender and like the the queer undertones in the play itself and in these two films? Yeah, go for yeah. it. Yes, let's. Yeah, well, there's obviously lots of queer undertones. I know Caitlin has thoughts on this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to be fair, most of my thoughts involved me writing. This is so gay in all caps at, at <laughs> like regular intervals in my notes. I mean, it's just, it's like classic. Like, I, I feel like so much of the um, stories and uh, media, films, TV, theater, whatever that uh, came after it that have the kind of classic someone gender bends and causes very confusing feelings for a bunch of people, which is just glorious uh, to watch. I mean, the sad thing always is that in the end, there's like, no, it's okay because you're actually heterosexuals and this person is, was pretending to be a different gender. So, like, I keep thinking of Mulan the whole way through. <laughs> the um, the dude whose name I've forgotten who falls in love with Mulan as the dude and you can just see him having very confusing feelings the whole way through. And then it's like, no, Mulan's a lady. It's fine, um, which is the slightly sad part at the end. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's... I think there's, I mean, there's a reason why very strange people who run the school boards in um, New Hampshire in the 90s banned it for being too gay, uh, which is a strange fact that I found out. The 1990s? Um, yeah. 
in oh, New Hampshire? I was in, um, I was oh, in school in New Hampshire in the 90s. Did you study Twelfth Night? Uh, no. <laughs> I studied it in 2001 in New Hampshire in at school, but not uh, not in the 90s, which is um, odd. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of actually it's kind of amazing to think about the fact that this was written, you know, when it was written uh, at a time when, like, I mean, obviously it's all heightened when you have just all the characters played by men or all the characters played by women, but um, in the case of the Globe show it's uh i mean the the gender bending stuff is is has another layer to it and uh but yeah like uh i mean just in uh early modern england the idea of of pretending to be something that you're not was such a big deal um and half the reason why the theaters were looked on as being kind of by a lot of people as being you know inherently wicked and uh because of that kind of disguise and and pretending to be something that you're not and um i think it's it's really interesting how that taboo or slightly controversial thing kind of continues through to now with our slightly different but yet still reasonably consistent ideas about gender and sexuality and yeah I don't know if I have any more coherent thoughts than that really beyond just the wonderful like visuals of especially in the nun film of these two dudes wearing the kind of uh, smart military jackets with the polished buttons and little mustaches uh, just almost kissing and then being like, Oh, whoa, what happened? <laughs> well, that, I mean, there's the, in the globe production, there's Orsino who keeps grabbing Cesario's hand and like, won't <laughs> let it go. And then just lets it go for a second. No, let's hold hands a little longer. <laughs> No, this is weird. No, let's hold hands again. Yeah, I find the play really, really plays with uh, with those ideas, right? And and I mean, when I'm watching your productions, like the mind sort of keeps slipping between like falling into the moment and then remembering that Cesario's really, uh, really a woman. But like having the player sort of feel that constant tension, uh, the characters feel that constant tension throughout that sort of arises and, and secedes makes for like a, a very interesting uh, dynamic. I thought there was interesting gender treatment in the prologue, even of the film, mm. um, with the uh, watching the binding and watching the hair cutting and watching this bit about a sock getting stuffed in someone's <laughs> pants, which is like, okay, I get it, <laughs> I get it. You're turning her into a boy, but then also, what what does that mean? What's interesting, I suppose, what does it mean in the world of sh- uh, the time that the play was written? What does it mean in 1996? What does it mean in 2012? What does it mean in 2016? They're all different things. Um, so to to see the treatment of gender in this play, and and what gender affords or doesn't afford, is really it's really interesting. Um, I think none hits it hits us in the head with a hammer, and the Globe production doesn't really talk about it, but just does it by casting all men which is i'm 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 on board with that how about the way that they move does that trouble anyone or confuse anyone or how do you feel about the the movement style of women in the globe production before we (laughs) i just had a i no no i let's let's talk about that i just i had a comment about because you were talking about how they were dressing up viola and making a big point of her being a man and then they have a lot of scenes where people keep trying to grab her breasts Oh yeah, oh yeah, and she's like, the fencing instructor, like she, yeah. It's so like, let me get my mallet and just crack you in the head with this. But yeah, no, let's talk about the movement and the way that Mark Rylance just glides across the stage. <laughs> I mean, I loved it and I found it very. Uh, I I found it really funny. Um, and yeah, I mean, there was. So what what it reminded me of, particularly for the movement of Maria and uh, Olivia, it brought to mind sort of the the uh, like uh, Oscar Wilde, the like the British farce tradition of the you know the matriarch being played by a male, um, and a lot of those like traditions, and and it made me start thinking about the that that tradition is sort of either lived on or found resurgence in different periods in theatrical history, and is now sort of you know still accepted as a very certain type of comedic performance which makes the 
which to me made uh, Viola in the uh, Globe production stand out more because it was it was so much more un- unusual. Even though you know there were three men playing female characters, at least for the older women, it, I was able to relate to it through the the farcical tradition of of drag. Whereas uh, you know there's no been no real continuance of uh, of that for the young female characters. Well, I think also, I mean, it's funny because I went straight to Lady Bracknell also. I was like, oh, mm-hmm. when are we going to get Mark Rylance's Lady Bracknell? Because yeah. <laughs> period dresses in a dress is like a gift to the world. The way he glides across the stage is hilarious. But I, And I think that they get away with a lot of this silly movement because they've got period costumes on. And so they really lean into how goofy they can make it. Whereas the, if they were wearing Edwardian costumes, it would have been much more naturalistic and they wouldn't have been able to make it quite as broad. And I think it's also that it also spares them in part because it's all male cast. Um, but also the period costume spares them from like, like the thing that happened with the RSC's production of Matilda, where they decided to start casting a man as um, the Trunchbull. And that was done in the original production that Matthew Workus directed. And he doesn't seem to have much rationale over like why he did that. He was just like, yeah, I liked this actor. Um, and then now it's been done ever since. And it's really kind of weird and and doesn't and not quite right because it's kind of has this it's like it hasn't really examined the fact that it's making this weird comment on like the character being like vaguely trans, maybe, or like having these I- backwards ideas about gender roles and the fact that because she's like a scary woman that she should be played by a man. On the other hand, having somebody tall because of the fact that he's a guy. So he's like six foot three because not everybody can be Elizabeth Debicki, like lends the Trunchbull extra scariness. But anyway, like there's all these complicated things because it's like a modern, it's a, I mean, it's set in the eighties, I guess, but it's like fairly modern to the point that we're now you like are judging it by modern standards. And so it brings up all kinds of weird questions about gender in a way that, like if they had done this in modern dress, it might have been an issue. But because they've pushed it back into a time that's so foreign to us anyway, they can have this like foreign over the top movement. And it's just farce and not treated as like some kind of comment on women. Does gender, I mean, what is the role of gender in the play outside of Viola or Cesario in terms of that, just in the, in the play itself? Well, I mean, I think there's a lot going on because you have Mariah, who's the one who can, who it's basically her idea, the entire plot with Malvolio. She's the one concocting it. Um, And in the nun film, there's even that moment where Malvolio comes down at night to tell them to shut up. And she notices his yellow stockings and gets the idea that she's going to have him dress up in yellow stockings. Um, But she's very much like the architect of his, his dulling. Um, Right, right. And and the play has been done as like Mariah's play before. So, I mean, there is this sort of interesting thing where she's both the servant and a woman. And yet she's like smarter than all of the noble people that she hangs out with. And they all like bow down to her. Yeah, um, yeah. And equally, you have Olivia, who, I mean, Rylance plays her as, you know, very silly and fainty and off the wall. But um, Helena Bonham Carter's is much more down to earth, I think, and played is much more sort of sensible. I mean, obviously she goes off on Cesario, but she's much more played as a more rational person, just in a crazy situation. And it's sort of interesting that both in the Rylance and in the, uh, sorry, in the, in the Globe production and in Nun's production, that when Orsino finds out that Viola is in fact... Viola and not Cesario. Mm-hmm. Like he doesn't even skip a beat before he's like, "Oh hey, I guess we can get married now because you're a woman." And it turns out the fact that I had all these feelings is okay. And like, there's not even a second of like, "Hmm, that was kind of homophobic." Right. Well, Arsuno in the text also calls uh, Viola boy, boy. Right. You know, and uh, for, for, I'm gonna, which is a very interesting moment of you're you're still a boy. Until you're in your women's weeds or until you're, you know, until you change. But then that gets into, does the clothing define the person or is this about, was that a slip up? You know, that's a, that's an opportunity for an actor to go, 
what is this moment of you can't change I, mean, I suppose you could but the text is very clear Orsino knows Viola is a woman and calls her boy <laughs> so yeah well they so, saw that in in the globe production by having like they're having um Sebastian's back to them and having Viola sort of her face being blocked so then Orsino pulls Sebastian over to right. start wooing Sebastian and then and then Sebastian's like um and then Orsino's like oh whoops sorry and Sebastian's like it's okay it's fine. It's fine. I know we look exactly the same <laughs> this has happened before yeah. <laughs> that was hysterical that was such a funny moment um yeah in terms of that um do do the clothes make the person um it's interesting to think of in terms of the like rules around early modern English dress. Cause like there was an actual statute that determined what you could wear. There were certain things you could only wear if you were a certain rank. And so in a sense, they, if you're talking Shakespeare in England, then yeah, I mean, the clothes do in a sense make the person. So the, the sort of calling um, Viola boy until she changes into a dress makes a little bit more sense. But I also think right. there's yeah, definitely heaps of room to play it as a, as just like a slightly wry joke from Orsino's perspective. Um, I was thinking about Olivia and the difference between the two performances of her. And I really, I'm obviously Nunn's film was pretty much across the board going more serious than the Globe production. But um, I think in, in the Nunn film, Olivia is young and vibrant and uh, obviously gets carried away with her emotions, um, both with, her perhaps with her brother's death and with um her attraction to Cesario. Whereas I from Rylance's Olivia, I got this real like this is a maybe slightly more middle aged, shut in, shy woman who's obviously very like played very silly, but like who's also getting carried away but in a different way. So like obviously the the age difference between Olivia and Viola in the globe show is is much more pronounced so I definitely got a feeling of a a slightly isolated middle-aged woman sort of falling for a a a young boy well not too young (laughs) um and um and I think a lot of the really silly kind of fainting couch type moments really helped with that uh, well, that's that's how I that's where I got when I was watching it because at first I was just so annoyed by how ridiculous um, Olivia was, and uh, and then I sort of thought, oh, okay, well, if it's if um, Rylance is playing her as a very silly, overwhelmed middle-aged woman, then I can deal with that. <laughs> Interesting. I mean, I think in the Globe production, they're very much asking us to laugh at Olivia because of. Mark Rylance's exaggerated movements and his, you know, the fact that he even has a fainting spell and that that's played for comedy and and it's all just very over the top that we're asked to ask to laugh at Olivia. Whereas I think in the nun one, we're much more on her side and there's much there's a bit more empathy towards her that she's not just like a um, a silly lady and that she has you know reason to go after Cesario and, and, and even in the costume too, is they have, there's this bold choice where when she, when she knows Cesario is coming back, she's deciding Mm -hmm. what she's going to put on her, continue wearing her black funeral garb, or if she's going to change and she decides to put on a blue dress, um, Mm -hmm. which is a pretty bold statement of, you know, well, I'm really into Cesario and I'm going to live again. And I think that, also makes her relatable and not just silly. And right. it probably yeah. helps that it's, you know, a blue dress and not, you know, a silly pink dress. Not that, not that pink dresses are silly. I just mean that <laughs> don't overly lean into, like, exaggerated femininity. Even well, though, of course, you know, Helena Bonham Carter is gorgeous in it. The word blue also has connotations that relate to mourning and sorrow and sadness. Like, even though it's a bright color... I think blue, it's, it doesn't, I don't know. It, to me, it's it's a really interesting choice. It's a really interesting choice. Because you also have the stereotypical, let's open the box and see what color balloons come out. It's a boy, it's blue, right. it's <laughs> pink, it's a girl. But blueness, or she's still like, I will be bright and vibrant for you. But at the end of the day, I'm still sad. 
I'm still blue. Like, <laughs> it's, I don't know, maybe I'm overthinking it, but I think that's really brilliant choice. When you also see the, the difference between their reactions to finding out that Malvolio has been duped, that Mark Rylance as Olivia thinks it's hilarious and then realizes that, you know, that's maybe not the nicest and most sensitive reaction. Right. Um, and in the Nun film, Helena Bonham Carter's like, oh, shit, I'm so sorry this happened to you. I know it looks like my handwriting, but it isn't. What a mistake. This is right. too bad. Mm-hmm. And she definitely comes off as more compassionate and more of a person than Rylance is over the top. Me, me, me. And I'm, I'm so ridiculous. And that, you know, that, that works in Nun's play, which is much more, or Nun's film, which is much more darker and humane, I guess, in some ways than the Globes production, which is definitely going for farce. Right. Well, it's, it's fun to, again, going back to the text that the first words, the first two words she says, Olivia says to Malvolio, are poor fool. How have they baffled thee? So she's turned, Malvolio has become the fool. And I think Nunn does a brilliant job of setting up in the very first meeting the Malvolio-Feste feud that drives that whole subplot uh, of when she has the catechism and he cheers her up and he comes he comes back and Malvolio is basically like, I don't know why you like this guy. And he in in the shot with with in the film, you just see Ben Kingsley like staring daggers through mm-hmm. Malvolio, and it's such a brilliant. It's so clearly framed that from this basically from this moment forward, I'm gonna ruin you. <laughs> like <laughs> it's um, it's interesting that the payoff comes on poor fool that, that her response, um, which I think I think they did a nice job. I think. They capitalized on that more in the film than the stage production for me personally. But I don't know. I mean, I think the film takes madness more seriously because Mm -hmm. Malvolio's descent is is a sad one. And in the play, in in the Globes production, not only is it, you know, just constantly played for laughs, but you... There's a, I think they kept a lot more of the dialogue where people are like, is everybody mad in Illyria? What is this madness? And right. just constantly talking about madness as though it's a silly, funny thing, which it definitely is not in The Nun. That's the end of this episode of the 21st Folio. The next part of the discussion will be available to download on Friday. To keep up with the latest episodes, subscribe to the 21st Folio podcast on iTunes. For show notes and more information about the podcast, please visit 7th-row.com. That's S-E-V-E-N-T-H-R-O-W.com. com.